Well, the first pastor we ever hired here at the church uh, was named David Clausen. He came on staff in 1988 and was on our staff for 10 years. And at the end of that time, we sent him out along with 125 of our members and two of our elders to start a church that is still in Heartland or Creek Community Church. And I remember when Dave came shortly after meeting his father and mother, it turns out that his father was, at least in some circles, a kind of famous person. He'd been a missionary in Nigeria where Dave was born, uh, a church planter, a pastor, and an educator. And um, when I met him out in the lobby, he, he shook my hand and he spoke some really encouraging words to me that as a young man, as a person who was starting a church and, and someone who hadn't grown up in this kind of environment or in a Christian home, were very encouraging. But I'll never forget another thing that he said to me as he closed. He, was, he, he said, you will need a lot of patience because pastoral work is very discouraging. And his words were prophetic. You know, people change very, very slowly. And when I say that, I have to say, that's true for me, just like everyone else. So, you know, I think about my own life and some of the things I struggle with now, I struggled with 30 and more years ago. And that's discouraging. And sometimes our discouragement is modified by events that we experience. I I remember moving my family here from the Chicago area and renting a house in Brighton Township where we thought the church was going to start. It happened at that time. We had three very small children. The youngest one was six months old, uh, three months old, I'm sorry. And uh, we moved into this home on a Saturday. On a Sunday, I had to speak at a church. My wife had pneumonia that she was recovering from, and I wish I could have stayed home and nursed her, but going to speak at a church was something I was doing to feed these little hungry mouths that were at home, so I had to do it, and I got in my car by myself and drove the 30 or 40 minutes to Plymouth where I was speaking, and I remember a very dark conversation I was having inside of myself. I had moved to Michigan because there was a man who happened to be an elder of the church I was going to speak in who wanted to start a church. He was a good man, but I'd met about 10 people, who younger families, who said, we'd like to start a church, and I really didn't know them at all, and I was thinking, I'm going to get on the phone tonight and start calling these people, and they're going to say things like, you really meant it? Like, you actually moved here? I mean, we didn't think you were really serious about this thing about starting a church. And um, fortunately, that was a low point, but it was one that cleared up very rapidly as we started to meet that week, and, and the church eventuated out of it. Some of our discouragement goes away quickly, but there's other discouragement we face in life that's more rooted in reality. The fact is, like I said, people change very slowly, And things change very slowly. And growth occurs very slowly. And what we find in the Christian life is that often, even when we're seeking to follow the Lord, we're going to face discouraging situations. When you come to the realization that God wants you to be a follower of Jesus and you start to do that, you may feel at that point like there's a whole new purpose and vision for your life, a whole new direction that you want to go. But what you'll find out pretty quickly is that there's still difficulties and obstacles that you're going to face as you move through life. 
some of those may be the consequences of the past. Sometimes people find when they come to faith in Christ that while they have forgiveness and peace and a relationship with God and a love that they've never experienced, they still carry with them certain consequences of past actions that are going to dog their heels. There are sinful actions that we may have engaged in, responsibilities that we've taken along that carry us into the new life, and regrets that we might have over wasted opportunities. We have to figure as we move through life how we're going to face those things and deal with them. But more frequently, we feel, as we move through life, disappointment that the ways that we thought life would work for us aren't working. You know, we, we sought marriage and family and church involvement and work as avenues that we believed God wanted us to move down through which we would experience this sense of satisfaction and significance. We prayed about all of them, but we soon come to points in life where we realize that marriage is really hard and children don't always do what we want them to do and they're kind of difficult to raise. And uh, churches aren't always nurturing. And I'm not speaking just a pastor. I mean, everyone experiences that at some point. Jobs are mundane and all that we long for isn't coming to pass. So much of life is learning to deal with disappointment. And so much of what you become in life has to do with how you face and move through disappointment. Now, for most of us, discouragement is something that punctuates life. It's not every single day. But it is a regular part of life. And even when we're trying to follow the Lord, we often find ourselves in situations that can discourage our faith. So this morning, I want to talk for a few minutes about discouragement. Uh, I want to talk about how we face discouragement and fight our way through it and what God wants us to do with that. And one of the people that can help us is Joseph. The passage that we read, it's a passage that is like a, a study in discouragement. His life story is a life story of, in many ways, overcoming adversity that he faced. Now, Joseph was a person, as we've seen in the last few weeks, with dreams, literally. He had dreams as a young man, about age 17, uh, that he was going to be the chief person in the family in his generation. And what that meant to him was something different from what it might mean to anyone today because he was the great-grandson of Abraham. And Abraham was a person to whom God gave specific promises. And included among those promises was in you, Abraham, and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That is, God intended from the beginning to bring blessing to the whole world through Abraham and his descendants. And Joseph's dreams that are recorded in chapter 37 of Genesis tell us that he saw himself or God gave to him this vision that he was going to be a very important person, not the only important person, or not the only person that was important because all of the seed of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham were, but he was going to be a chief person in the carrying out of that promise to bless the whole world. And when we read the first few chapters, particularly of Joseph's life, we see him face a whole series of blows that would have um, really knocked out a lesser person. We see him uh, 
sold into slavery by his brothers. And then when he's carried down into Egypt, he's made a slave of a particular person. And while he's there and being faithful to his master, he's accused of sexual assault of his master's wife. And so he's thrown into prison where we're told that he was confined. The word means that he was in chains, actually. And there in prison, we find out that Joseph was a faithful man. That's what this passage was about. He was faithful to God, even though he was facing this adversity there in prison. But even after he goes through that, this chapter ends with the words that Paul just read to us. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So he was rejected, enslaved, falsely accused, imprisoned, and forgotten. And as I said, stronger men than that have crumbled under those kinds of adversity. You know, following the Lord does not mean a person will experience a lack of adversity, a lack of obstacles in life. It doesn't mean a person won't be discouraged. I remember having a conversation with a person in my office once who said to me, even if Christianity, I'm sorry, this person wasn't in my office. That's another illustration. Uh, I once heard a person say this, even if Christianity wasn't true, I would follow it because it's the best way to live. Well, I have to inform you that that is not true from the Bible's perspective. The Apostle Paul speaks to it very clearly. He says, if this whole thing about Jesus isn't true, if he wasn't really the Son of God who was raised from the dead, then, here's his quote in 1 Corinthians, we of all people are most to be pitied. We've thrown our lives away for a lie. That's the perspective of the Bible. And when we read God's book, we often find out that faithful believers were in situations that were very discouraging to them. I I had a conversation once in my office, a long conversation with a person who asserted that a faithful Christian will always be victorious, that discouragement is a sin, that um, if we are really believing God, we will overcome every obstacle that he ever faces in our way. And I said, what about Jeremiah? Who, who at the end of the book is taken down to Egypt against his will and dies there. Writes the book of Lamentations. What about Psalm 88, which is all dark. It's the black sheep of the Psalter. The only psalm in which the only light is the first sentence in which the psalmist says, oh my God. That's the only light. He speaks to God. He tells him what he thinks. Everything else is dark. What about that? Uh, What about John the Baptist languishing in prison, wondering if Jesus really is the Messiah, and then being put to death? And what about Jesus himself? Didn't he face discouragement? I mean, we are told in the Bible that he continually entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. But we are also told that in his humanity, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. That is, he faced unjust suffering. And what he faced was obscurity. The Son of God stepped out of eternity into time, assumed a human nature that covered up his divine nature so that even though he was God in the flesh... People didn't know that. He lived in virtual poverty, 
He walked through a world riddled by sin, not being recognized, faced mistreatment, so that even at the very end of his life, they called him Jew boy and ripped out his beard and put him on a cross. Do you think he wasn't discouraged? Uh, Discouragement is the testing of faith. It's not the destruction of faith. So Joseph's life shows that even when we're trying to follow the Lord, we, all, we often find ourselves in situations that can discourage our faith. But Joseph's life shows us another thing, and this passage particularly exemplifies that. It shows us that we must take the opportunities that God gives us in the midst of our discouragement to be faithful and obedient to God. Even in the midst of discouragement, despite our discouraging circumstances, God calls us to seek to live faithful lives. When we look at the life of Joseph, particularly in this passage, that is what we see. He has experienced a couple of blows. First, sold into slavery by his own brothers and that kind of rejection. Second, a false accusation, which landed him in prison. And there in prison, for the second time now in the story, the warden sees this is a special person just as his owner did originally and made him the steward over the household, the warden sees this is a person who is special. And so he assigns him the task of dealing with two very special prisoners, the chief baker and the cup bearer of the pharaoh. Joseph makes uh, one statement that shows us what his attitude is. It's found in verse 7, where he sees that his two charges are dejected. There's something troubling them. He says in verse 7, it says he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now, this is an interesting passage in one sense. It's a passage that needs almost no explanation. It's pretty self-evident. The distance in culture and time doesn't uh, blind us to the fact of what the story is basically and what's going on. But there are a couple things that might be helpful to understand here. One is that we might not regard these as very important people, but Scripture would, and they would have at this time. You probably can't name the the main people, the primary people responsible for cooking and serving food in the White House. I doubt if anyone knows who that is. In the ancient world, it was a very different position. For one thing, these were the people who guaranteed the, the quality of the food that was eaten. The baker didn't only serve baked goods to the, the king. He made them, and so the quality had to be right he also guaranteed the purity. And that is that a king in the ancient world, and I suppose this is still true to some extent, a ruler always faced the possibility of someone poisoning him. So we know that a cupbearer was someone who didn't just carry a cup. He would drink the wine in the presence of the king before giving it to the king to demonstrate that it's not going to kill you. But the chief cupbearer also didn't just serve wine. He was like the vintner, the person who grew the grapes and made the wine. So he guaranteed the quality and the purity. And a person in those, the people in those kind of positions had to be extremely trustworthy. These are the people who are in prison. And Joseph is given responsibility for them. A second thing that's helpful to understand the passage is the importance of dreams. 
the text up to this point has made you somewhat aware of that. Chapter 37, Joseph has a dream. And because of it, his brothers sell him into slavery. It's significant. And then here's a dream that these two Egyptians have. In the next chapter, the Pharaoh himself will dream. And we'll read about that. But here, these two people have dreams. And to the Egyptians, they really counted on dreams to bring them messages from the gods. They had a whole class of official dream interpreters who were a form of magicians who had... uh, occultic insight into the future and that kind of thing. And these two men in prison had no access to this professional help, but they were very anxious to learn what these dreams meant. So Joseph comes from a completely different mindset, a background. It's one in which he has been taught that the true and the living God says any form of occultism is wrong. Any foresight, insight into the future that isn't revealed by God is wrong. It's wrong to seek out any second sight, spiritual vision, human insight that's meant to understand life and events of life apart from God is wrong and to be avoided. So he says, do not interpretations belong to God? That, that is like a a world-shaking thing to the worldview of the Egyptians. What he means is it's not human learning or art that can figure these things out. It's only a revelation from God. He's saying, I'm dependent on God alone. Tell me what your dream is. He's asserting God's sovereignty over the future. In that one statement, he tells us that whatever discouragement he has felt, he still is clinging to his faith in God, and he's seeking to be obedient to him. Now, you have to understand, in the stories about Joseph that we're looking at, Joseph is presented to us as a man like us. He isn't presented to us as being perfect. There are a number of places where we read things about Joseph that tells us that he struggled with taking his faith out of the environment in which he'd been nurtured and being enslaved in Egypt in the midst of a religion that was completely, in many respects, antithetical to the religion of the Bible. But Joseph is presented to us in the Bible as a person who, in the midst of that, clung to God and to his belief in God. He's not a perfect human being, but like so many characters in the Bible, he ultimately points away from himself to another. That is, he points to the God-man who finally, when he came, did perfectly what all these people who foreshadowed him in the Old Testament pointed towards. Jesus was the one who was always obedient, always trusting, always seeking to do good to others. His life exemplified the words of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Jesus' life was a blessing. He was the embodiment of the fulfillment as the final descendant of Abraham to bless all of the nations. He's the means by which God, through Abraham, blesses the nations. So what we have in Joseph is an an underlining and a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And he tells us we must take every opportunity which comes our way, despite the discouragement that we might face in our circumstances, to seek to be faithful and obedient to God. I think we do this by looking for ways to serve him 
even when we feel our service is not bearing fruit. In 1991, when the church was very young, uh, an opportunity came up for Laura and me to go to Athens, Greece, and work with some missionaries. These were people that we didn't know. We'd gotten their name through someone else, but these were people who had moved to Athens, and without any knowledge of the city, they had just begun to work with refugees. They'd be walked on their feet around the city for weeks, finding out where the refugees and illegal aliens were, and they began to feed them. Um, we went to work with them. And I have to tell you, when I went, I was young and I was really apprehensive. It seemed way outside of my abilities in life. Uh, But being a man, I didn't tell anyone that I was apprehensive about it. I said, boy, this is a great opportunity and, you know, you ought to send me there and spend a lot of money to do it. And um, inside I felt like, okay, God, I really don't feel like I'm cut out for this. Um, But I'll go ahead and do it. And I I haven't really said this to many people, but I have to tell you, that experience for three weeks in the summer of 1991 was not very good. Uh, Most of the time we were in Athens, I felt sick, partly because I have seasonal allergies that are very slight here in Michigan. When I went to Athens, I don't know what it is I'm allergic to exactly, but it's like I, it was full-blown. I had a headache the whole time. My nose was running. I felt tired. In addition to that, I felt frustrated and discouraged and under pressure and depressed. I felt like I was tagging along with this missionary and taking up his time and energy. And I was trying, but it just was a world unlike anything I had been in. And um, when I was on that trip, I had one conversation that was a a very good conversation. That was, I met at a soup kitchen, a young man who was 24. He was an illegal alien living there in the country. He'd overstayed his visa, was working in a, in a pizza parlor, making $12 a day and $6 he sent home to his parents in Albania where there were no jobs and $6 he lived on. And uh, I arranged to meet with him the next day at his hotel. He was living in a small hotel and uh, you know, we met, he, he lived in a hotel that is on the mountain. I can't think of the name of it, but it's where the Parthenon is, right in the center of Athens. And uh, this seedy hotel, we met there and we talked for a number of hours. And during that conversation, God opened his eyes to understand Christ as his Savior. And he became a Christian in a very evident way. And I've told that story before, but that young man's name was Gregor Menga. He was here a few weeks ago and spoke here. Um, he was, at that time, an illegal alien, a young man living in Greece. When I came home here, I remember sharing about our trip with people. And like most people who have just spent a lot of other people's money, I decided that I would leave aside the fact that personally I had not found it to be a particularly wonderful trip to be on. Uh, But uh, what I focused on was things like I had this conversation with a guy who came to faith in Christ, and I only was with him for a week. I left him there, and he was discipled by the missionary and went on and, and began to grow and return to his home country that he never intended to go back to. And and I figured that even though I did not find that trip to be personally encouraging, it was a very discouraging time for me. At least, you know, there had been one benefit that came out of it. It was only many years later, about six or seven years later, that I began to see the fruit of that. It was when I took the elders to Albania in 1996 
uh, to visit a little group of Christians that Gregory had gathered in his parents' apartment there and, and the church, that I realized despite the discouragement that I had felt, um, I could see that trip in a different light. Like God had used one act of faithfulness in the midst of a lot of discouragement to bring fruit. And that's what you see in Joseph's life. He was faithful in the midst of discouragement. And then the passage tells us he was forgotten. Can you imagine what kind of a blow that would be stuck in prison? We're now, by the way, 13 years after the point when he was sold into slavery, when all these things have occurred, slavery in the home of Potiphar and then imprisonment there. Uh, We're 13 years past that, and time was going to continue to go on for a number of years, and at at least seven years were going to pass before his brothers showed up. And there began to be a realization that God had used even the discouragements that he had gone through in life. And finally, we don't know how much later it is, when he finally says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. All of those things that I experienced. You know, remember that verse that we started with this morning, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It means a Uh, adopt the attitude that Christ has, seek to live in that way. That's what this passage is meant to point us to. Joseph reminds us we should seek to be faithful even in the midst of discouragement. Because in him, we're able to catch a glimpse of what we find later was fulfilled in Christ, the one who is perfectly faithful, completely faithful to God in the midst of discouragement. In his unjust suffering, we're told of Jesus, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, when we come together, one of the things that we're meant to do is to remind each other that this is what our goal is, to adopt the attitude of Christ, to seek to be the kind of people who, in the midst of the pilgrimage of life that involves discouragement, seek to be faithful to him. So as we come to the table today, let's come with that mindset. Adopt the attitude of Christ. Let's pray. Again, our gracious Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have to be here. Give to us freedom as we worship you, not only in song, but also as we come and bring our hearts to your table. At your bidding, we pray in Jesus' name.